0: Welcome to today's episode of Self-Made Stories. I'm your host, Brian Schechter, co-founder and CEO at Self-Made. Today, I'm sitting down with a good friend, Nick Ling, co-founder of Pattern Brands, formerly known as Gin Lane. Gin Lane helped launch brands like Sweetgreen, Harry's, Hims, Hers, and many others. Pattern was founded on a core mission to create products and guidance that inspires their customers to learn, explore, and lay a foundation for a more present life. It's all about getting off the screen and doing something that's going to make you happy. You're going to love hearing how Nick frames what they're building at Pattern. It is deeply rooted in a sense of mission and purpose that we've talked about a lot at Self-Made Stories as the key underpinning for business success. So welcome to Self-Made Stories. Nick, we're so happy that you're here. Thanks, Brian. Nick and I are friends, so that so for our listeners, viewers, just like get, there's there's some context here. But I'm excited to just do what we normally do in terms of just getting a pretty broad overview of your life and what brought you to here. Yeah. Uh, but before we do that, why don't you just explain a bit about what you're doing today?
1: My name's Nick Ling. Um, I am CEO and co-founder of a business called Pattern Brands, and we launched Pattern Brands two months ago, so we're super early in our current journey. And pattern brands itself is a business built around the idea of how can we combat the burnout we feel all around us in the modern world whether it's from technology work social media all those things that maybe invade time that you used to have to spend with family or loved ones and we're doing that by building a family of brands each which give you quality time back in your life so how can you Find and protect areas of your life which won't be invaded by looking at your Instagram or checking your Twitter feed or getting another work email, or mm-hmm. um, with the hope that we can help people find more fulfilment in their everyday lives in a very approachable way.
0: Awesome! And then you yeah. recently launched your first brand. Yeah,
1: yeah. We recently launched the first brand as part of the family. Um, so patterns the almost like the parent. And then our first brand is called Equal Parts, which is a cooking brand whose whole idea is to help people enjoy home cooking. You know, and we'll talk about this later, but I found very much personally for myself that when I'm cooking, I'm not thinking about everything else that's going on around me. I'm just thinking about how do I cut this onion Mm -hmm. a bit better? And obviously repetitive motions are things that get you into flow states. Mm -hmm. And so the goal with Equal Parts is to... Do something we think is universal which is providing food and eating but make it something that we're encouraging people to chisel out time in their lives for because we believe there's a benefit from intrinsically doing it versus just eating the food
0: you've said this what you just shared mm-hmm. uh, and i'm just gonna like repeat it back because yeah. i think it's 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 really precise yeah. i think in terms of like okay pattern brands exists to help People take some time back for their lives yeah. to improve the quality of everyday living, yeah. and that you're launching a series of brands to support that. With the yeah. first one being Equal Parts to be um, supporting people to like bring cooking into their life. Yeah, um, it's it's so um, like clear the, yeah. the 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 mission behind the brand. And one of the things and we'll, we'll talk about this in a bunch of different ways that we've been learning is like just the role of mission in building yeah. a successful e-commerce business. Yeah. very few founders start off with such a clear articulation of their mission we actually yeah. just we had uh, Dave from Bombus last week yeah. when you ask him what is Bombus about it's about giving socks to homeless people yeah. that's like where it came from. And that's not the most common articulation. Even though usually, when you really spend time with a founder, you start to realize there is some inspiration that got them there, some like purpose that's driving their creation. Um, how, how did you? And this is you know you're two months in, yeah. Yeah. but you've been doing this for a while. You've been around the building of brands for a while, and I'm curious. Like, when did you start to realize the role of mission in building a brand? And maybe you could share your story about. Your relationship and building brands with Chin Lane and everything?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll say one thing. I, I don't think that missions just come to you. Yeah. Right? I think they're things that you know you're walking in a direction and you kind of feel it out from there. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I think very few people have an aha moment, right? This is the thing I want to solve most in my life. I think the thing that we try to do at Pattern is even though we may not know what our final mission is gonna be, that in every way we operate along that journey, we try and go back to our best articulation of a mission at, in our current state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, a mission is the thing that gives me clarity in how I make decisions on how we run this business and how we think about the values we wanna put out there in the world. Mm-hmm. But just going back to it, right, like how can we like create A set of values that ladder up to that mission, which make decision making authentic rather than just all over the place. Because I think one of the most challenging things in running your own business, whether it's a small business, a very big business or a startup, is that 99% of the time you don't have all the information to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a North Star that you can go back to to say, I was authentic and value driven in how I made that decision. Mm -hmm. And my guess is with Dave from Bombas, he actually does have those values that he's living by in how he operates his company although he may not might not articulate them so much in a mission um so that's the first thing i'd say the, the, the second thing i think is interesting and you hint on this my previous experience was running a company called gin lane which morphed into pattern mm-hmm. and what gin lane was was a agency that helped entrepreneurs go from having an idea to launching a startup to the world and we were most effective at working with entrepreneurs who wanted to bring a consumer voice in the world for something that mattered really intrinsically to them. And so, over the, you know, the course of bringing 50 plus new consumer brands to market, companies like Harry's, or Hims, or Sweetgreen, we were able to start seeing and learning from those people of, you know what really makes these things special and exceptional and what things are actually not quite so important. Mm -hmm. And the best advice I ever got was from um, Jeff Rader at Harry's. And what he talked about was, get to what your really clear view of your brand is and then just keep on repeating it. Mm -hmm. Because I think for me, I have a very clear view of what we're trying to do with pattern. Right, it's burnout, there's quality time, there's creating space for yourself. But for everyone else, that's brand new to them every time they hear it. And through every touch point or channel your consumer knows about you or finds you, I think that you've got to articulate that in a lot of different ways. And unless you have that really codified, it's really difficult to do that, whether it's through your social media, your content, your website, being on a podcast, um, your customer service. And, you know, when I think about, you know, success for us as a business right obviously I'd, I'd be really excited to build a significant business that redrives really the change we want to see in the world but that's pretty unlikely just in the nature of building a new business and I think like rewinding from there is like I'd like to lead a company and act in a values-driven way so that we're authentic to the mission we're going after at every step of the way.
0: All right, I, let's go way back. Where is all of this coming from? Like, Tell us about your life.
1: You can hear from my accent. I'm not from New York City. Um, I grew up um, just outside London. Um, you know, my mum was a math teacher. My, das- my dad was an accountant. Um, they still live outside London. Um, you know, I think I've always been drawn to like problem solving that's really tangible to me, right? I'm in like a very marketing mission driven place now, but I studied a degree in physics. Right, which somehow couldn't be more difficult, different than brand building. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've often thought like now looking back at that, why did I study a physics degree or why did I make the choice of where I am now? And it all goes back to with physics, you could have a problem and create a system to solve that problem. And that's what always got me really excited about it. What pushed me away from more of a scientific type route was Those types of things become very intangible the more expert you get. And um, through my career, I've really enjoyed being in places where I can start interacting with people as well as solving problems.
0: What's your resume?
1: Right, so I I graduated um, from my physics degree, um, started out getting the basics of business, worked at a company called the Boston Consulting Group, which is a management consultancy for a few years where I just learned the 101 of like how to act in a workplace. It's kind of how I think about it. I was very raw coming into it. where did you go to college? I went to Oxford University. Um, it's funny. I go back to Oxford, and you know, you study a physics degree. There weren't many options of non very traditional subjects you could study. Right. Right. I wasn't allowed to take any course except for maths or physics. Before.
0: Well, so years. what do we have in England? We got Oxford and Cambridge. Cambridge. Is, is Oxford's the really beautiful one? They're both very nice. They're both very, very nice, yeah. very,
1: very quintessentially English. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I, I spent a summer, I think it was at Oxford. It was at Oxford when I was 16 and lived in an Oxford dorm. How did you find it? Oh. I loved it. This So this was in like 95. Okay. So it would have been before you were 2003. Yeah, okay. So yeah, no, I got to live at Oxford before you. Yeah. I would get these like um um toast. Uh, cheese toasts
1: Cheese, cheese toasties, yeah. oh my
0: god they were amazing that's where I learned how to play pool too I, I would play yeah that's a big thing uh, go, I would go play schnooker yeah. at these like schnooker clubs Snooker, Snooker clubs yeah I, I like basically spent the summer playing that game yeah. anyways okay so you're you're at um, Oxford BCG or BSG what is BCG. it BCG mm-hmm. in where, was, where were you
1: I was in central London okay I travelled a decent amount that time I've always been drawn to like exploring things. Mm-hmm. While I was based in London, I spent most of my time like in South Africa and Australia. Was where like the projects I was staffed on were.
0: What well, was like a project that you did where you really learned something about business and started being like, okay, I'm 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 starting to get this.
1: I worked for one of the big food companies, where they were thinking through like for big food companies, they're selling through other people's businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So they're selling through convenience stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and it was um, one thing, one one interesting thing was um, how they could influence where their products were in the store, Mm -hmm. right? Because the big thing is like make your snacks look good compared to other people's Mm -hmm. in the store Um, But it was figuring out how to do that in an efficient way when they were all over the UK and all over America. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I think at that stage, I started to get to a place, one where I understood a way of working. right? Where I always like this idea of a hypothesis-driven approach, which is something they very much drill into you, Mm -hmm. which is less about considering all the options. Mm -hmm. and more about saying what could a hypothesis be that we could prove Mm -hmm. right and why that resonated with me is being a bit of an impatient person it's something that gets you hyper effectively to an answer Mm -hmm. versus just considering everything Um, and I think on that project right like I started feeling like that was like something that I'd really got a good grasp of and I also started to see that you know classic things that like having the right answer wasn't good enough Mm -hmm. Right, like you can be do all you want in like building a strategy on a on a whiteboard and an Excel model, but it's more about persuading people around you mm-hmm. in how to go after that. Which I I learned a decent amount from. Um, one of the people there told me that I should always treat every meeting like an act of theater, hmm. because that's the way that you get people to believe in what you're doing, mm-hmm. versus like presenting information. Mm-hmm. And now I'm saying it, that's basically what brands do, Mm -hmm. right? It's like how, and the, while you can give people lots of interesting information that might help them solve something, it's the way you present it in a very persuasive way that really gets buy-in and people supporting you, right? And when I run Padden today, right? Like I, one of the biggest challenges is that even running a small company is that you may have what you perceive as the right answer, but persuading people that's the case and that you and as a team want to go after that is Mm -hmm. another challenge altogether Mm -hmm.
0: so keep going through so BCG
1: yeah I I then moved on from BCG um, I just got like an itch right like uh, I remember my act of rebelling against BCG was turning up to work in kind of what I'm wearing today which is like a jeans and t-shirt where it was an office culture wearing like a suit where maybe you didn't wear your jacket the whole time Mm -hmm. and I think that it maybe wasn't quite the right place for me to fully express myself. Um, so I ended up getting put in touch with a couple of entrepreneurs um, in a completely different country, in Bogota and Colombia. And I went and worked for around a year as a chief of staff to two businesses in Colombia. Um, one, which was a microfinance business, so a business that was trying to reintroduce Colombians to the credit market by giving them small loans and helping them build a credit record. And the other was a film production startup, which was being built on the idea that LATAM content was gonna be the next big thing for both South America, but also the American market too. Um, so two wildly different things, but I remember I just wanted to just get an experience where I felt some like real ownership, and also like just be exposed to like, more ways of working and challenges that I wasn't feeling in like more of the corporate job that I was in. What was that like? It was humbling for the first, for the first while right because you think you know everything and then you realize it's 10 times harder than you think it's going to be yeah.
0: consulting has that effect I think it's like I've come to see it as an incredible training ground some of the um, most effective people in startups that I know had a background in consulting but they have to have some period where it's like oh shit I have to like actually do something right now I yeah. have to like get something done and deliver on all the operational the way, goal all the way yeah
1: right and you get the you get the stuffing beat out of you a little bit.
0: And you were, so you went from that, from the consulting into like a real operating yeah. function. Yeah. That's sort of like you you dove into the deep end. And like sense. in
1: a country where I didn't speak the language. Yeah. In a completely new like working environment, right? A different, very different working culture. But it was almost what like I was craving. It was like an extreme ex- difference to what I'd gone through already so far. Mm-hmm. You can too often think career paths are like linear, mm-hmm. right? But you just want to get like vastly different experiences to see what sits well with you versus maybe what's not so intrinsically motivating over the long term.
0: Okay, so you did that a year. Yeah. And then?
1: Then I came to the US and I went to um, business school at Harvard. Um, and that was um, seven years ago now. So I spent two years. Um, where i think the humbling experience of like figuring stuff out on the fly in colombia i was kind of looking for like how can i expand my horizons of the types of things i could spend my time doing yeah if if you go to business school you want to go to one of the u.s schools because it's the place where that concept is done the best
0: Mm -hmm. that concept that like the network the expanding the horizons Yeah. yeah
1: and being able to learn new things and experience different types of people who are learning new things. I think, um, you know, in contrast, when I left Oxford, there were no startup jobs to go to from Oxford. Mm -hmm. Even when I left London in like 2009, 10, I think the entrepreneurial ecosystem there was very, very, very nascent, Mm -hmm. right? I think probably less than five real VCs in the entire market. Mm -hmm. And... The contrast to coming out of HBS into the American market where being entrepreneurial trying to build your own thing is promoted mm-hmm. and failing is encouraged which is like markedly different than say how I was introduced to the labor market in the UK mm-hmm. and you know also I'm part of the working generation where in my first month of work, Lehman Brothers collapsed.
0: At BCG? Yeah. Okay. In 2007.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of how each of us have built careers with stu- having a ton of student debt, mm-hmm. right? And then graduating in such an uncertain market is so different than what it would have been like graduating in like 1990. Mm-hmm. And maybe how you'd have decided trying to build your career, mm-hmm. right? It makes you want to take more risk because the other options to you maybe aren't as attractive in those types of um, environments.
0: And then straight from HBS to um, to Gin Lane?
1: Yeah, I... Um, How did that happen? So my co-finder, Emmett, um, on the outside couldn't be more different to me. Mm-hmm. He's like a, um, he grew up in Long Island, he um, has been in the creative community of New York his entire career, mm-hmm. all the way from just being a photographer to, You know, I think being incredibly influential in terms of how this modern wave of brands have been developed. Um, And we got put in touch by a common friend and just started to get to know each other. Um, At the time, he was feeling out of his depth on how to manage a business, Mm -hmm. right? I think a creative skill set is vastly different than a business skill set. and I was just looking to get to know people who were doing interesting things. Mm-hmm. And before I jumped on board with Jin Lane, which was already around, um, we just got to know each other over the course of like six months. Understanding how each other work, seeing if like we meshed well together, um, getting to know each other in like stressful and non-stressful situations.
0: What was like a highlight brand for you guys? Or, or, a, or a moment where with Gin Lane, Gin Lane started becoming Gin Lane as it as what it became. Um, and then I also want to know about just the decision to get rid of Gin Lane.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's fun, right? Um, <laughs> Gin Lane was born as part of the New York ecosystem. Yeah. Right? So as like this wave of consumer brands, that I think started with like a Warby Parker in, you know, like 2009, 2010. Gin Lane developed with you know, this revolution in consumer brands. And there were a couple of brands like Harry's and Everlane, which we were involved with and we learned a lot on, but we weren't the number one protagonists mm-hmm. in really creating them. Mm-hmm. And I think we started feeling finding our own feet really clearly with a brand called Smile Direct Club, which was interesting for us because what Smile Direct Club is, is a disruptor of Invisalign. So they basically help you get uh, really aligned, good-looking teeth. Um, and they were being started by a couple of founders out of Nashville who were coming to New York to like try and buy into like how consumer brands were being built in New York. And they'd launched their business on Groupon. And their business looked like before and after photos, mm-hmm. where you can imagine the mouth being held open like this, mm-hmm. and you saw, bad teeth to good (laughs) teeth, right? And that worked on Groupon because like it was like a brand didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Just the function mattered for them as a company. And, but what they found out was that the business really had legs from, you know, very basic product market fit. And why that's a good example is because there was that strong foundation of product market fit before we started. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to say, how can and be the really, really core to that business in terms of how does this become a business that's resonant to the entire of America, Mm -hmm. right? And this may sound simple now, but the big insight that drove that brand was that people were buying Smile Direct Club for Mm self-confidence. So there was a ton of people in America who didn't feel comfortable smiling in photos Mm -hmm. because they didn't like how their teeth looked. And the target audience for it wasn't, you know, maybe someone who lived in New York and, you know, had a really amazing dentist. It was someone who, in their teenage years, maybe didn't have enough money to get Invisalign or have braces. And now they were in their 20s and 30s. And maybe they'd started a career and Smile Direct Club represented something where they could, you know, unlock more self confidence. And we really like took that one articulation and just blew it up across their entire ecosystem, and relaunched the business um, around four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, They now have, I think, nearly 200 stores across America, Mm -hmm. um, do close to a billion dollars in revenue, um, and recently IPO'd right on the market. And things that were cool for us were, one, we felt really part of this. We also invested in that brand. And I think it's cool when you're doing something where you believe in your foundational DNA that you are also really bought
0: in to the long-term growth. And Gin Lane invested? Yeah. So I want to go back for a second, that's that's a good one. Yeah. So you just mentioned a couple different, in a couple different ways, this idea of a revolution in consumer brands. Yeah. Can you just speak to what you mean by that and what what you think it's all about and why it exists or why it's happening?
1: Yeah, I think, most people in America will have seen that Instagram feeds change. Yeah. Or if you live in New York and ridden on the New York subway, where you see all these ads for new brands that are being built. And I think we're like at a little bit of an inflection point on being like maybe at peak brand. Mm. But rewinding 10 years ago, you saw the first seeds of that starting to develop. And I think there were like two or three things that were really going on. One of which I think is going to be very long lasting. Um, th- the first one would be that millennials, um, of which I count myself part of that generation, were becoming a clear part of the workforce and of the consumer economy, and that just as a generation we've grown up with very different values and expectations from the world versus maybe our parents' generation, which would be the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I think baby boomers would have valued, um, say, if we stay in food for a minute, right? Like having everyone having mass availability of tasty food, right? And so companies like Kraft were really grew in that era, where suddenly the whole of America could have high quality, tasty food. Fast forward fifty years to the millenn- or forty years to the millennial generation, we kind of take that as expected. Right, just having tasty food isn't good enough. It has to be healthy. Mm -hmm. It has to be made in a good way. It has to be good ingredients. It has to be um, um, sustainable, right? And I think it's very difficult for existing brands to morph to that new identity, right? Like um, say Heinz for instance. Heinz ketchup is a classic example of flavor for the whole of America developing, right, for the baby boomer generation. The modern version of Heinz is a business called Sir Kensington's, where their core value prop is that there are good high quality ingredients in here with low salt stuff that's good for you and good for the world around you. And they've managed to create a very significantly sized business very quickly based on that change in just values. Right. And I think we'll all agree when you go into if you go if you walk into a Warby Parker store versus going to a Luxot like an optician's. It just speaks to how that has evolved at a very fundamental level. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is a pretty obvious one, technology, right? That um, technology allowed new brands to be built and immediately reach everyone. Mm -hmm. So if you built a new brand 20 years ago, you would have had to go through um, uh, retail channels where it's very difficult to get shelf space. You need to have a large amount of capital to be able to Get your products on shelves with this direct to consumer you now had a channel which could reach everyone in america straight away right by selling to them online and it allowed new brands to be built with these millennial values in lighter weight ways and i think the third one is just how marketing has evolved and it's particularly paid marketing that through social media you can now target very small sets of consumers With your message rather than just broadcasting to everyone through tv or print advertising which again lowers the cost to starting a new brand Mm -hmm. and i think those three things started to happen as technology started to mature right with the introduction of iphone facebook being around for a while and now you're seeing that evolution has just continued and is keeping on picking up pace where i think you'll see Nearly every category have new brands built with new brand values over the next ten, twenty years.
0: There also seems to be something of like that's that's kind of connected to your first one around the search for meaning yeah the that's that's like I want to feel like the products that I'm buying um reflect my values in some way right so self-made partners are 90 plus percent not venture backed yeah they range in terms of like how big the business is from just just getting going to around 10 million dollars in revenue but making the investment in in a like agency yeah is really hard when you're bootstrapping yeah what would your advice be to someone who's listening to this right now and is thinking in some way or another, like, well, this sounds great to sit down with, like, yeah. Nick and Emma and talk about, like, what's the nature of the smile and self-confidence and how are we going to, like, do this thing? Someone who feels like, I- I got, I got, I've got no time <laughs> to do anything right now. What, what would you say if you're if, to that person in terms of thinking about their brand?
1: You know, Me and Emmett ran a small business, mm. cash flow business, Gin Lane, yeah. for five years ourselves, Yeah, right where we had no venture funding, right where I'm sure we went through some of the challenges that your listeners feel of, hey, can I make payroll? Can I make rent because someone's delayed a payment to me for no really, really good reason, mm-hmm. right? Which I'm sure people go through, and you go through the ups and downs of stress. I, but I think what we found with Gin Lane was that one thing that made as successful as a small business was having a really clear, succinct message. Mm-hmm. Getting to that baseline and being very comfortable behind that baseline and how that links to your strategy is really important.
0: What With, was the Gin Lane message?
1: So our message was, we are the brand to build startups, right, essentially. and But I can tell you, we would get reach-outs from the very biggest companies in the world, right, Fortune 500 companies, all the way to tiny small businesses all the way to VCs or private equity firms in wanting to work with us. And when our best business started to go on downward slopes versus upward slopes through those five years was when we lost that focus yeah. of being really clear of who our customer was and what our message was out there in the market. And everything else drove back from there. And um, what I found incredible running Gin Lane was if I could use that message to help me make decisions going back in my business, right? So if we're the brand for startups, we shouldn't work with these bigger companies, not because we couldn't do something special with them, but because our team weren't the profile of people to know how to account manage and navigate a 5,000 person company. Mm-hmm. We were designed for two people who were super lean to go after something with us. Mm-hmm. and I guess for your listeners, some of the takeaways there is that, that I don't think you need to do a big agency project to really get to that. I think there are some um, um, some simple frameworks of like a why, how, what. i encourage people to read Simon Sinek's book about that where you can start to get to just some of those articulations. And I think operating in that manner with an imperfect articulation is... A massive step forward for anyone in how they manage their business. So yeah, we. I mean, we just
0: did this exercise at SelfMade um, about six months ago with one of our board members who's got a long history in marketing. Yeah. Where, you know, because SelfMade has gone through many different stages as a business. Like when yeah. when we first started, our mission was to make the internet a more beautiful place. Yeah. And it was all about editing pictures for consumers who wanted to share really exciting, expressive content, primarily on Instagram. And so that was like a super different place. And now Selfmade is focused on being the marketing partner with just what you need to grow your online business. Yeah. And that framing, um, the marketing partner with just what you need to grow your online business, was one that we, just, we developed. We're really in a three-hour conversation yeah. We said we, we are going to define what we are and we're going to develop a statement that says this is what we're all about. Um, and we can change it later if we want to, but we're going to stick with it for at least a quarter. So at least for 90 days, we're going to all use this statement. And so we're now like probably six months into it. Oh, good. And it's serving this function, um, you know, we you know, we in terms of who we work with. Um, and in terms of which is the biggest thing I think that's the biggest thing is, is when you start saying no even when it's hard to say no because you want the thing that you're going to get from the yes um, except you, you, it's funny you, you start to move faster
1: it makes you leaner and more effective yeah right? and suddenly you have more time right yeah. because it delineates where you should spend your time um I'd also say, and this is the other thing, and salespeople who listen to this will resonate with this, people don't, uh, whatever a business is, whether it's a B2B, technology, a big brand, a bookshop, you, 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 you don't buy things based upon function, you buy them based upon stories. Yeah. And humans communicate based on stories. And I think it's really important to have that guiding statement which helps you make decisions, and then a story around why that matters. Yeah. Right. And um, for me, I think that whether you're pitching someone through a sales meeting, it's less about the facts and more about the story that you're going after. Mm-hmm. Whether you're building a brand to try and sell it to consumers, really what consumers are buying into is a feeling rather than a function. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, people can push past functions that don't quite make sense if they emotionally connect with something. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think there's a, a lot of really good small businesses that have done that very well early on. I always think about like Danny Meyer when he first opened a restaurant and like having this very, very clear view on hospitality. Mm-hmm. That's something that's carried him from being a small business to a very, very big business now mm-hmm. with Shake Shack. Um and I think how you're talking about it, I I think three hours it's just, I mean it's, it's just important you're not zero on this,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? You don't have to be 100, just step from zero to one that that's how you wanna operate your business.
0: And, and I think what it is is that you can, it can be iterative, yes. but it's just this idea of, I'm going to have a concise, clear understanding for myself and for people I'm interacting with at all times about who, who we are. Right. I Hope you enjoyed that episode with Nick as much as I did. It's just the beginning. Part two, we're going to get more granular and learn from Nick how he thinks about the day-to-day with pattern and how he's going after acquiring their first customers. Nick uses a great framework about believers and buyers that really captures what I think is one of the most important things for building a healthy e-commerce business. So be sure to tune in. You can check out this episode on our blog at blog.selfmade.co with extended show notes, linked resources, and some video footage. And you can learn more about Pattern and Equal Parts online or on Instagram at patternbrands.com and at patternbrands. Till next time.